Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards a hopeful future. The episode you are about to hear was recorded during our live event in November of 2023 and is part of our series on the humanities of artificial intelligence. This series was awarded an action grant by Indiana Humanities and received support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. This Thank you talk for listening. is the ethics of machine learning. And so let's begin by having each of you introduce yourselves. Dr. Gupta, do you want to start? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Ankur Gupta. I'm a uh, computer science faculty member um, at Butler University. And um, <clears throat> my normal work is on algorithms and uh, um, design of data structures. I also uh, recently have been working on um, artificial ethics, so how you can design ethical systems um, computationally and have them do well there. And I also work on um, artificial wisdom, defining what wisdom means in an artificial um, context, computational context. Wonderful. Okay. Colin. So I'm Colin McKinney. I'm also a college faculty member uh, in math and computer science at Wabash College. Um, I'm trained as a mathematician, but have ended up teaching a lot of computing related things over the last few years, uh, including uh, this semester, I've got machine learning, uh, machine learning course. Um, worked some with robotics, uh, mostly for just introductory purposes. Um, but, uh, but I've also taught a couple of courses on Star Trek and the liberal arts and uh, thinking about ethics from that perspective. And that was, although that was uh, before ChatGPT and everything kind of blew up. So new to the party. Yes, I'm Barrett Caldwell. I'm a professor, also at, uh, an academic by by trade or training, uh, uh, in industrial engineering and uh, aeronautics and astronautics at Purdue. Um, my background is a combination of systems engineering and human factors engineering. So I'm one of the people who uh, is um, a designer and implementer of some of the algorithms that. Uh, my two uh, panel colleagues uh, uh, design or calculate or, or generate and uh, trying to understand how to integrate uh, AI and machine learning types of tools into uh, human team performance. So uh, work in the area of what's called uh, human AI or human robot teaming. Excellent. So we're here to talk about the ethics of machine learning. Let's start. Uh, by getting some common language around what what is what is machine learning? What is it? How are we using it? Don't all talk at once. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, yeah, so machine learning. I mean, there's a variety of forms of it. Um, some are sort of statistically based. Others are are you know, artificial neural network kind of based. And that's where I think the, the frontier is right now is with the, the neural network uh, sort of thing. And it's in some sense trying to digitally replicate biological or biologically inspired systems. Um, and then what learning means 
partly right now is sort of a context-specific thing that you design one network for one kind of problem and another network for another kind of problem. And uh, if you're doing what's called supervised learning, you train an AI by giving it examples of what an input might be and what the correct output that goes with it is. And you do this lots and lots of times with lots and lots of data, and then the, the AI sort of learns in some sense what, uh, you know, given an input it's never seen before, then it hopefully gets an output that's pretty close to, to correct. Um, but that's just one kind of AI uh, supervised training. There's, there's plenty of others. Um, <clears throat> I might try to, to say that the, the ultimate goal of machine learning and in general um, uh, AI techniques is, well, machine learning in particular, is about um, prediction. So what you're doing is you're taking some amount of data, perhaps even no data, um, and trying to predict or estimate or categorize or characterize information that you have not yet seen before, or at least the AI has not yet seen before. Um, <clears throat> and a, a good machine learning algorithm will do that prediction process very well. Um, and generally the way that it's doing that is by trying to pick up or um, develop pattern recognition across the information that it has had available previously in order to make conclusions about what comes later. Um, and that, that pattern matching or recognition is only as good as the information that it can utilize or leverage to get to that final prediction. Um, supervised learning, um, as mentioned before, is one of these techniques. The, the supervision is that the data is pre-identified in the past, so you know what all of the correct answers are for that, and then you use that to train um, some kind of a system so that in the future you may predict unknown data. Um, but there, as, as was mentioned before, there are many such ways to accomplish this, and that's, that's only one of the techniques. So, so I, I think that, you know, from a calculation standpoint, um, what you've heard is a very good description of a concepts of learning, supervised learning, associative learning, uh, predictive learning that um, imagine that you're trying to start with a, a, a set of algorithms and mathematical relationships to describe what a toddler does to learn about the world, where there are three, there are three additional challenges for the toddler. One is they don't know what a training set is, and they don't know what the outcomes are supposed to look like. Two, they are trying to intuit both the rules and the patterns at the same time. And three, they are trying to both um, make sense of the uh, logical descriptions of the objects and the social rules for how to function as a member of the society. So the, one of the big challenges I, I see for machine learning algorithms is how to do that, and as you said at the beginning, um, in a general purpose way, rather than having to create an entirely new set of algorithms and a whole new set of hidden layer networks for each new problem that, that's difficult to scale.
So the Oxford Dictionary defines ethics as moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. We're talking about machines. They're not people. So why, why do we care about their ethics? How can they have ethics if they are machines? Um, I'll start by saying that ethics, uh, machines don't have ethics. That is not, that's not a thing. Um, <clears throat> computers can't think, machines can't think. They have no agency in this way. Um, when we talk about ethics in machine learning, I think what we're talking about is we want the results that come out of that machine learning algorithm to be consistent with what human beings think of as ethical behavior. Um, I think that that's an important um, way to think about it because what we're doing is trying to impose an additional constraint on the output of a machine learning algorithm. We're not just trying to say predict well. We're saying predict well in a way that is consistent with the way that human beings would think about the issue. Um, and that is a separate, very important constraint, but it is separate. And I think part of the reason the conversation has become so important is because for many, many years, we've been focused on just getting any answer that's reasonable, not even not an answer that's necessarily consistent with the way that humans want to think about it. So I think, I think it's important to think about the framing of ethics and machine learning in this way. Um, and I, I would maybe add that how we use and design machine learning um, is, is maybe uh, part of the ethical question um, that, you know, uh, machine learning is, is uh, as, as we've mentioned, um, partly about pattern recognition. And if you're using data that involves data or humans, right, human activity, human information, um, then what a, a machine learning algorithm can very easily do is identify a pattern that is something that is actually an undesirable pattern um, and illustrative of, you know, decades or centuries worth of, of human structure uh, discrimination or, or human, uh, you know, misactivity. And if you're not thinking about that in advance and realizing that what, what, what a system might expose to you as a pattern um, is actually you know, just perpetuating uh, discriminatory or, or uh, um, you know, sort of other bad human behavior, then you just, you perpetuate that and, and it doesn't stop. Um, and I think sometimes people think that, you know, a computer, because by definition it's a machine, doesn't have ethics, that anything it spits out is sort of perfectly ethical and that's, that's not true. I think another challenge is that if people don't understand that the machine is working on existing data, it's not generating new um, belief systems about the data that's been trained. Um, so those ways of being a member of society that I mentioned as an important thing about being a, a toddler learning, that part of the experience is sort of missing. The training set it doesn't get queried the same way. And so if you don't query the training set, you don't ever get to the point of, is this the way I want to process the world? Is that a proper way of processing the world? That's out of scope for 
and a machine learning algorithm that, as you said, has worked for so long just to get any answer at all and be able to tell the difference between me and this bottle of, of soda. Um, but then you have to ask the question of what other problems does it have when trying to distinguish me from my colleagues and what, what reasons or what um, issues were involved in how the training sets were designed because the machine learning algorithm is executing, not designing, or not curating those, those training sets. Um, <clears throat> I think I can provide a little example to help explain what, what was just discussed. So let's suppose that you wanted to um, train a Roomba to um, walk, you know, to travel around a room in vacuum. Um, and one of the key things that you care about is that the Roomba doesn't get destroyed. So what you do is you tell this machine, I want you to provide solutions for me where the Roomba does not get damaged as a, process, as a part of vacuuming. <clears throat> it's very possible that that robot will then ingest all of the data and decide that the most optimal decision is to simply not move. Because it turns out that minimizes the damage to the robot, right? Now, this is correct. It's an answer, and it's valid, but it's not the answer that we want. That's similar to how we feel about machine ethics. We get an answer, but we're like, wait, but that's not what I wanted to hear. Um, and so then we might change the metric. We say, no, no, we do want you to minimize damage, but you must move. And it says, okay, no problem. So then it designs an algorithm that spins in place. Again, it does exactly what we asked it to do. It is moving and it is not gonna damage itself because it's spinning in place. Um, you can iterate on this process. You can say, no, no, you must move in a direction. You cannot simply spin. Um, so it says, okay, no problem. And eventually, um, it'll decide that it's going to move backwards. The reason it's going to move backwards is because the sensors for damage are on the front of the robot. And so if it moves backwards, it will never hit those sensors and thereby satisfy the requirement that it will not be damaged because it doesn't sense that it's being damaged. So this is you know, a series of evolutions, if you will, if you want to think of it like that, where what the AI is doing is it's coming up with a solution to a problem but the real problem is that we aren't specifying what kind of answer we want clearly enough. We're not telling it the rules of the game clearly enough, and that's why ethics is a big part of the conversation, is that we haven't been very clear about what we want in ethics, and fundamentally, that's a human problem. And, and it's difficult for us to yeah, know that. And I, I love that example because... That's a great example of, well, here's, here's a way of setting up a set of what we'll call objective functions, ways of getting a good answer. Not once did the objective function in that example start with, I want the room clean. <laughs> That's your purpose for being here. Otherwise, you're just, you know, an extra Amazon delivery. Um, so what are you, so the real trick is what are you trying to get done and how are you executing trying to get that purpose done and that is a piece that we 
that we as humans don't always recognize how to ask and specify what we really want done in the world. And when it then comes to an ethical decision about, oh, what are good answers to getting that done? What are bad answers to getting that done? And those actually aren't computational answers. Those are philosophical ones. And we may get to this uh, later, but I think generative AI systems are you know, now a, a, another uh, type of AI. Um, and they've become very famous, right, in the last year or so with ChatGPT, and uh, certainly everybody in the in academia is thinking about them, uh, about you know, are our students just cheating with ChatGPT or whatever? Um, but I think there's going to be a really interesting ethical dilemmas that, uh, and and we're starting to see this where you can make a very very convincing video or audio recording that sounds like somebody or looks like somebody saying something that they never actually did and how that gets used or misused in for human affairs in politics or or uh, whatever i mean i could very well imagine a war starting over a fake video that somebody produces um that that i think is one area where the frontier is so new and so bleeding edge that you know people aren't aren't really talking about it or if they are um, I don't know if they're talking about it well but it's fundamentally then more of a human problem than a computer problem I mean it's epistemology how do you know what is true and what isn't and um, you know we're not teaching philosophy in high school so um, I'm not sure. Uh, and maybe we'll get more into the generative stuff uh, later. Well, but. we do have a talk on AI and the nature of truth that Dr. Graft will be doing later this weekend. So um, tune in for that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about how, you, how do you build ethics into, and let's start with machine learning, and then we'll talk about how generative learning is different or gener generative AI is different. So what's the mechanism? How do you teach a machine these things? <clears throat> I think uh, I think the easiest way to describe this is to say that when you are trying to train a machine to do a thing, you have to tell it what it should value. So it has to know this particular trait or property or concept is desirable. Um, and then you tell it in some sense to filter uh, positively towards those kinds of outcomes and negatively towards the kinds of outcomes that are not in your decision list. Um, <clears throat> so if you account for what is ethical, then if ethics was uh, uh, an easy to determine thing, let's suppose that it was easy to calculate or easy, easy to, even for humans to explain, if it was easy for humans to explain, then it would just simply be a very objective thing. This is more ethical than that, therefore this is the outcome that is provided. Um, in, in more objective tasks like find me web pages that have this particular search term in them. Those are much more objective questions with objective answers that can be evaluated in such a way. I think the complexity of ethics is 
there isn't unilateral agreement amongst human beings about what's considered ethical behavior. I mean, I could go trolley problem or you know Nazis, whichever way you want to go, um, to to indicate just how complex um, ethical behavior and ethical design is, and um, you know humans' opinions of what ethics are change even within the circumstance or even within the same circumstance as time moves on, um, which is a very interesting, weird way to think about human decisions. Um, so I, I think the answer is, if you could figure out how to accurately describe what ethics actually is objectively in a way that everyone agrees, then it's really easy. Um, you just uh, code that up and, and we're good to go. Um, and, 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 and while you're accepting that, you have to toss out every version of, well, of course all right-thinking people believe X. And the next time that you have any social experience, think about how much that fits in to a good thing to do versus a less good thing to do among different groups of people that you've known or interacted with at any point since you have memory. The more different groups of people you've experienced, the harder you realize that is to, to figure out. And one of the big challenges is if you assume, if you start with that assumption that I already know what most right-thinking people are thinking like, you've already fallen off one of the major cliffs. Yep. I, I will give another terrible example, if you wish. I, um, I'm loving the rumors, so, so go. <laughs> so... Um, so here's an example about self-driving cars. So um, self-driving cars are a concept. Um, they, they exist. We might want to do them. One of the biggest limitations for implementing them is actually how that car should behave ethically. So let's suppose that that car is driving down the road, something catastrophic happens, and you now have the choice of either having the car drive you off into a bridge where you will hit the post and immediately die, or you could kill two children. So the question is, what should the car do? You're not able to make that decision fast enough. It's the car that's making the decision. And that choice has to be encoded for the car in advance based upon our ethical concept. And so you might say, well, no, we should definitely kill ourselves. We should definitely kill the two children. There are differing opinions on that. And so you might say, well, that's problematic. I guess we can't decide. So let's never build cars. Isn't that the one where in some countries, if say the pedestrian made the mistake, they're more expendable versus if the pedestrian was not breaking the law. In some countries, they're like, kill the pedestrian if they broke the law. The other countries were like, no, no, you never kill the pedestrian. So it's like all these different countries had different rules on how they would do it. Right. So the context of so the question was about whether the context of where you're going to do it matters. If you're going to kill a pedestrian in the street, if they're violating the law, they're jaywalking versus they're not, that, that adds another dimension to that. So you might say, okay, as a car manufacturer, maybe I don't care. Maybe I'll back up and I'll just put a dial in the car <laughs> that, that allows you to choose between altruism and egoism. Right, And so then you can select, because nobody's going to buy a car that will instantly kill you anytime. So then, so you let people decide. Now the question is, how long will society go between, before every single one of those cars is in the egoistic setting? 
And for those people who are in altruistic settings, when 95% of the population is egoistic, what they're really doing is signing a death wish every time they get in their car. So this is not easy to solve, right? And, and one could even argue that that's more objective than some of the other more nuanced conversations. So in the show Upload, they address this. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Uh, in the first season, the protagonist is killed while in a self-driving car. And before the accident, his girlfriend is horrified that he does not have prioritized occupant on, and she changes that in the car for him. Well, it's, it's funny that when you talk about it that way, um, it, it, the protecting the self is considered egoism and, and, and protecting the other people is altruism. But you could actually make a different case about signing the death warrant. That's actually what you're doing when you are getting into your car and not uh, attaching your seatbelts. That's what you're doing when you're getting into the car under the influence of uh, mind-altering substances. So even what we think of as altruism and self-interest, I think it sort of underneath this is the problem of where the agency is and not just where the decision is. Um, you know, in, in my last talk, I, I was able to write out a list of rules for how to be a certain type of person. But the problem is we don't, we don't know what those are. I think I know what mine are, and they aren't the same as what they used to be. Most of us find it, uh, some of you may have had a Thanksgiving dinner where you found out some of these conversations are quite difficult. Um, some of my research is in healthcare, and it, I th find it fascinating, not very far off of this discussion, there is a grand consensus to reduce the costs of health care and the use of health care resources until it is self or a member of the immediate or inner circle of affection for the person making the decision. I'm willing to cut costs on health care and allow people to die whom I don't know and I don't love. But the ones I love the most, I make a completely different decision. This is like major surgery is defined as surgery that's happening to you or someone you love. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's not major. <laughs> so we've had a couple of examples, but what are some of the ethical... Oh, actually, before we go there, how does generative AI change the game on this? Mm. I would... I would say generative AI just produces a different kind of output. So instead of being predicting, um, instead of predicting an output, it produces an output that matches with high fidelity the pattern data that it was given to, to work on. So it's, and, and the reason that it's more different or thought of more differently than some of these other strategies is because it's closer to what a human might produce. It's closer to what a human might do. And so... Our, our human brain is saying we might feel more threatened by this. It's not just numbers. It's not just pictures. It's text that I could have written. Um, and so we're more, we're more challenged by that notion. Um, I mean, it definitely does other things too, but I guess my point is, is that it's the nature of the output that I think is the most um, 
difficult component of generative AI. Maybe you can talk about that. Um, yeah, sure. Um, the I mean, and since all three of us are, are, are professors, um, and certainly we've been having lots of conversations with colleagues about this, um, when ChatGPT kind of hit the scene, like previous versions had hit the scene, but they were pretty terrible. I mean, uh, um, I'll be perfectly honest, right? They they produced you know text that was readable, but they were hallucinating left, right, and and sideways. Last year, though, with when ChatGPT three or three point five or whatever it was was released, I remember uh, the conversations with with colleagues and. Uh, because I teach at a very small institution where there's only, you know, 80-something faculty, I'm having conversations with people in every academic discipline, not just in, in my own. Um, and my colleagues in the humanities, some of them were convinced that the sky was falling and that, like, life as they knew it was over. And they're just like, well, I guess we're going back to blue book exams and uh, uh, not having, you know, it was sort of the, the death of the college essay, right? Never again are we going to assign an essay because ChatGPT can produce a, a B-level essay in, in 10 seconds. Um, and for that, um, maybe the way I I've, I've think about it and and maybe this will anger some of my more humanistic colleagues. If you're writing an essay prompt that ChatGPT can write an answer for and get a B, that's your problem, right? <laughs> and that, that, that means that you have a bad prompt and you're not really digging into something. Um, I think we're really thinking a lot about how can ChatGPT and other generative or uh, systems, uh, large language models, be useful in a, in a classroom setting and how are they not appropriate in a classroom setting. Um, and these are things where every single member of the faculty is going to have a different opinion. I mean, it's it's even worse, I would say. You know, do you know how you get 25 opinions? 20 p uh, 20 you get five PhDs into a room, right, and uh, have a faculty meeting or something. Uh, um, and, and that's, you know, joking, but, but I think also a, a really realistic sense of things. I mean, I mentioned before generative AI being used for nefarious purposes of deep fakes or, or whatever. And, and maybe in that sense, right, that that kind of uh, those sorts of dirty tricks have always existed in in human society. Um, you know, spreading rumors, or uh, the, the Russians would do this, or Soviets, I guess they called it compromat, where you know they they fake generate a, a photo of of somebody with uh, ladies of the night or whatever to discredit them and um, it's just a, a new tool for doing it um, I, I'd say maybe one other thing and then I'll, I'll uh, ask our audience member um, uh, is um, let me make clear that the AI detection systems like is this paper written by chat GPT um, basically zero scientific validity to any of that kind of work um, at, at this point. So, um, and, and I've seen people fall into that trap. Um, yeah, sorry, you were gonna. I was wondering about the notorious parts of how it can be used. I know that we have a legal system and the legal system hasn't caught up mm -hmm. on, you know, if you're slandered by a computer system, it's gotta be done, I mean, the human had to initiate this, they're just using the AI as a tool. So how, you know, are there lawyers specifying in that? Is there, a, is there committees being formed on that? Or is this just something we haven't, we're just going to 
going to let happen and then react to. So the question, I'll just repeat this so that it gets on the audio, um, was, was about sort of the legal framework and that if somebody uses a generative AI for, you know, slanderous purposes, then, then you know, how do we deal with that? And I think you're right in that sense that, that it's ultimately the human behind it that's responsible in terms of how the legal and um, regulatory, I mean, these are still very big open questions. And it was maybe only a month ago, if that, that the White House uh, issued a pretty big uh, statement on AI and, and forming sort of a, a, a group to to advise on it. Um, but like with many technologies, law law always moves slower than than technology. Yeah, the the, the legal system in, in that sense, in its appreciation of technology, is still functionally operating based on copper wire telephone technology as the as the guiding principle for how we think about things like literally the term wire fraud. Okay, so. This idea of computer as a tool to do something, um, that's very hard to keep up with when it's been hard to say what's the difference between wiretapping a copper wire phone versus wiretapping a voice over IP connection. And so to say that they're going to be ready for um, the, the agency question of a generative tool that was indirectly uh, instructed or inspired or ordered by a human. Um, we don't even know wh where a machine is included in that, lo that logic train. But I, I really like your uh, point about the difference between a good prompt and a bad prompt. Um, because what you kindly said as hallucination is kind of like the Roomba example where tell the truth was not one of the guidances for the generative prompt. So um, one interesting way to, to test a, a student's understanding or the, to, to test the student's appreciation of a generative uh, uh, response is, can you find the citations? Can you understand the, the, the rationale that's gone into this essay that you're reading? And if you can't understand it as a reader, then you start asking the question, is this because I don't know or because truth was not one of the objective functions? And if you can't trust that the citation, it's not that it's the wrong citation, it's that an author and date was predictively generated that does not correspond to any article ever written. But because it's in parentheses, now it's got some air of authority, which people fall into all the time. And yeah, this is, this is a big problem for how we think about the information that we both send and receive. So, a lot of it is those assumptions, and we, this, we've touched on this a couple of times, that the underlying thought process is the, is the tricky part, right? That Roomba shouldn't destroy itself, but it also, it should move, right? So what are some of the assumptions that machine learning, once we start trying to get a computer to do things, 
we notice that we maybe hadn't noticed. I think someone made a reference that there were things that humans had been doing a certain way for a long time, and then we talked to machines about it and, and noticed things that we hadn't noticed. So what are some examples of that? I, <clears throat> I think um, the example about thinking of a machine as a toddler is a very apt one. <clears throat> Everything that it knows about the world, the physics, the the basic interactions that we take for granted have to be taught. Um, and I think that world building, that contextualization is in and of itself a fairly complex process. Um, that is not something, like you have to tell computers that fire is hot and that ice is cold and all of these kinds of things. Things that we sort of take for granted. Um, you know, the, the human mind can incorporate you know, millions of pieces of input and synthesize them seamlessly across a short period of time, whereas no machine that I'm aware of is capable of doing that. Um, one thing that I think may help in this conversation is realizing just how limited computational power actually is. So if you took all of the computational power on Earth from every device that is digital and you added it up that is roughly the same computational power as about 1,500 average humans. Um, so it's not a lot of computational power from that perspective. Now, what computers can do is a lot of repetitive, um, you know, potentially uh, complicated tasks that um, are prone to mistakes for humans. But what humans can do is synthesize the world in a way that no computer can. So we each have our different skill sets. The digital computational world can do some things better and humans can do other things better. And I think this, this conversation is really about trying to make computers do something well that they kind of suck at, right? Um, and that's, that's fundamentally the problem. We would love to leverage this tool that's very good at computation to do something that humans do uniquely well. Yet, it's obviously challenging, and that's kind of what we're trying to figure out. I don't know that this is an answer to the question specifically, more just more problems. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, the, the example I was maybe thinking of is, you know, if you were, for example, a bank or credit agency or something trying to, say, design an AI system or, or some sort of non-AI system to approve or deny car loans or house mortgages or something like that, um, then, you know, there'd be a lot of input that go, would go into it and, you know, credit histories and, and loan transactions that a person has had before. Um, and what that could identify, like, let's say that you trained this on, on data for uh, people going back 50, 60, 70 years. Well, 70 years ago, there, and, and maybe to some extent there still are today, just, just in a more shady way, uh, mortgage lenders would not lend to people of different ethnicities, uh, or there would be, you know, zip codes. If you're on this side of the tracks versus that side of the tracks, then maybe you're not credit worthy 70 years ago. And if you build your system with data like that, then what it can identify would be, you know, racial bias, for example, that, that existed in the past. And, and, and again, maybe to some extent still exists. Um, and you don't want that, right? It, it, it's of course illegal and also un, uneth uh, unethical. Um, 
so you have to be sort of conscious that you know you just have to like the, the machine is going to identify patterns and they might be bad patterns uh, and you have to have a framework in order to judge that and be cognizant of the data going in and you know because if it's in some sense already dirty or biased or or bad in some sense then you know garbage in garbage out um, and I don't think people, I think I mentioned this before, I think people think of a machine or, well, the algorithm said it's, it's you're not credit worthy, that the algorithm is just this arbiter of, of, of truth, and how could it be biased? Well, because it was designed by, uh, designed by potentially biased people. Um, it's it, maybe a, a Star Trek quote, so just, we got to get one of those in there today, right? Is um, in, in First Contact, when uh, Data is talking with uh, the, the Borg Queen, and she says something like, an imperfect being designed by an imperfect being. Um, well, it's kind of, kind of like that with machine learning. I mean, we're imperfect as humans, and we do a lot of things very well, but we suck at a lot of other things. And... Uh, you know, machines and systems that we design are going to have in some way our flaws embedded in them, and we just have to recognize yeah, that. So a, a, an unfortunately very telling example is if you were to use a large corpus of images that were tagged on the concept of successful person, not athlete, the, the skewing of what that looks like is very strong in the reporting in media over a period of decades, if not centuries. But let's just use photographs. So if you say successful person, not athlete, success already has a problem because we don't even know what that means yet, okay? But that process meant that when there was a, a machine learning application to sitting members of Congress, which we would say from a political sense, they have all succeeded at winning a seat in Congress. The white males were accurately recognized as successful people. And then it goes down in accuracy from there. And by accuracy, I'm not talking 98, 99%. It's 70s or 80s, somewhere like that. But when you get to women in Congress, people of color in Congress, women of color in Congress, men of color in Congress, it's, it's less than a coin flip. And so the question is, well, may, maybe this will change for me sometime soon. But images of someone named Barrett, not athlete, what will that generate? And is that seen as a successful person if there are not very many people for whom the corpus of available images will say, yes, we already know that that one's successful because the training set will overwrite that because of however many tens of thousands of other images that aren't appropriately tagged. And <clears throat> I would argue that success is easier to measure than ethics. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Bear. What 
ethical conundrums do you see our machine models, either generative or, or uh, classic, facing that worry you? No fear or negativity associated with a lie. Say more about that. Well, what we were just talking about, hallucinating is a cute computer science term for not including a focus on factual, accurate factual reporting as a, as a primary value for what is said or written. If you take that away, and I'm not going to get into lots of other political discussions about people who lie, but if you take away a primary valuation of truth as an important objective function as we've talked about, there's, it becomes really, really hard to curate what should and should not be presented. Um, and, I, and to me, that is not just a, a fundamental problem in and of itself. It takes most of your other solutions off the table. And that, to me, is very worrisome because you no longer have a defense to stand on. Yeah, I, I would say one, one area that, that we're going to have to think carefully about moving forward with, with AI systems of various sorts is when they're used in, say, military or police-type applications where uh, somebody's life could be on the other end of it. It might be very easy, for example, to imagine um, military use of AI drones that, uh, because it's easier, you don't have to send somebody's son or daughter off to a dangerous place. Um, and it, you know, use of lethal force against anybody is already a, a very tough ethical decision and whether or not we are willing to, well, willing or deceive ourselves into to giving that authority over to a machine um, is something that, that we need to have very serious conversations about. And this is one aspect where, you know, this being a science fiction inspired convention, um, to some extent, like, uh, sci-fi fans are ahead of the curve, right? We've been arguing about these things for 30, 40 years with characters like Data and, 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 and certainly others. Um, you know, certainly we should not be connecting them to nuclear weapon systems. Uh, we've all seen those movies. We know how they end up. Um, yeah. Let's play again. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> or, or Terminator or, you know, Skynet or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's one. Um, the the self-driving car stuff is is one that it's certainly it's already ex an existing conundrum and and one that we're going to have to think very carefully about moving forward. That you know if the car does crash and kill a pedestrian or the occupant or whomever, right? Who's liable for that in a in a legal sense, right? If I crash my car into somebody and I could be liable. If I'm drunk when I do it, then I'm certainly criminally liable. Um, but if the AI does it, well, who's liable? Do we go arrest the programmers? Uh, do we, you know, I, I, I don't know how to how to even think about that. But um, do 
you know, we're starting to have these conversations and we need to continue to, to have them um, at every stage of the game because if, if we're not having them, then, then people will just do stuff and not think about the consequences and that's a scary future. I think I'm, <clears throat> sorry, I think I'm most scared about how humans will react to um, machine-based decisions. Um, today, if we Google something, we take the outcomes that come from that search as being guaranteed. Um, a lot of times when I go someplace and they say, well, your credit has been declined, if I'm talking to a human being, they have no idea why. They can't tell me why because the decision is packaged inside of a black box algorithm that the people who are um, conveying that information don't know anything about how that decision was made or why. Um, what I'm most afraid about is that human beings will essentially treat computer systems as oracles, as um, places where truth is assumed and not investigate the consequences or the details of how that's actually calculated. Can, can I ask a follow-up? Yeah. This is not a trap. This yeah. is a real question. Because both of you have talked about that as a concern, and yet both of you have also used examples where we're already there. So I, um, are, are you talking about an abdication of responsibility that we haven't given or like, well, the algorithm did it or the computer spit it out or something like that. Could we already be too easily ready to abdicate to one of these uh, machine learning um, products? Because we've been, it, it's easier for many people to abdicate the responsibility rather than push back. I think the answer is yes. Um, the in some sense, this is not unusual. As human beings employ more complex, more advanced technology, there is no human being on Earth that can understand all of them. Today, when I go to turn on my car, I don't care what all of the stuff is that made it happen. I just know it goes vroom vroom at the end of me turning the key, right? In some sense, it doesn't matter to me exactly how it worked. Now there's a lot of very detailed, complex technology that goes into that, and I appreciate that, but in some sense, I have to have faith. Faith is sort of built in to the different things that we use. And I think the difference with AI and the conversation around AI is, we shouldn't have that same black box faith. I'm concerned because the examples that we've both given show that we already do that, right? And there are some cases where we use AI where we're actually very happy with it. Are we happy with self-driving cars? No. Are we happy with autopilot on a plane? Yeah, we've been using that for 30 years. And we're totally okay with a computer flying, you know, a giant metal brick through the sky that's totally all right with us. And then, you know, in the 80s, the pilot would come out and high five all the passengers and leave the pilot, you know, leave the piloting to a computer system. So we've been okay with the idea of AI for a long time and black boxing. I think the issue is, is that today 
with the level of, of uh, impact that these systems have, we maybe ought to pull that back a little bit and be a little more cautious. Yeah, I, I'd agree with, with my colleague um, and, and say that this is, you know, f in some sense then an educational problem, right? There are uh, certainly humans and human things that people have used as, as oracles, if you will, newspapers, radio, television, Twitter, or X, excuse me. Um, and, and that, you know, that problem in some sense, we just replaced the, the medium or the tool that, that got us there um, with one that, of course, is much more complex and much more black boxy than a newspaper where there's lots of humans on the other end of it. Um, so, yeah, we already are relinquishing some of this decision making. And I think what's important is that we need to recognize that we have done so um, and educate people that they they do so and and in some cases rightly so i mean yeah i don't know how my car actually you know i couldn't fix basically any problem other than a flat tire uh with my car um and and that i'm okay with that uh and okay with giving the car to a, an expert mechanic to fix it trusting that they will give me a reasonable diagnosis of it uh with, with AI systems and, and how ubiquitous they're going to become, that's maybe very going to be very difficult um, because there's just so many different systems that are going to be in existence. Um, but yeah, I, I focus this on an educational, critical thinking kind of question. Um, and as an educator, I suppose that's kind of my implicit bias to always think of things as an educational question. But. All right. This is a great conversation. I'd love to keep it going, but we are out of time. So thank you so much to our panel. And, uh, Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. And thank you again to Indiana Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting our series on the humanities of artificial intelligence. Find all of the related episodes as well as transcripts and discussion guides on our website at starbaseindy.org slash podcasts. To find out more about what we're doing now, including our live event coming up in November, check us out at starbaseindy.org or follow us on social media at Starbase Indy. See you on the Starbase.